it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. After you finish the episode, make sure to check out a brand new episode of our live music series on YouTube called The Ringer Room. Each month, we feature a new up-and-coming musical artist to play a live set in the Ringer Studios. So far, we've featured artists like Cautious Clay, Mount Joy, and Earth Gang, and we just posted our episode for July showcasing Charlie Bliss. You can check out those videos at youtube.com slash The Ringer. David, on Sunday morning, President Donald Trump tweeted some really racist stuff about members of Congress. According to Media Matters, he apparently got the idea from a Fox and Friends segment. What I want to know is, what other Sunday morning show in a just non-racist world should Trump take his editorial cues from? Wow. Wait, but it's on TV. I don't even know what's on TV on Sunday mornings. It's like it's like uh, golf and uh and uh um the Sunday morning talk shows, you know, you're the the face the nation and meet the press, all that stuff. Um mm-hmm. I mean, it would be really sort of amazing if he was just like like quote tweeting Joel Osteen on Sunday mornings. <laughs> just <laughs> like a I have a positive message. I have some thoughts on the prosperity gospel and why I think it applies to every American. <laughs> I just remember when we were kids, weren't those Davy and Goliath cartoons on Sunday morning? <laughs> were those claymation? Yeah, those were de- uh, those were definitely claymation. I'm pretty sure they were on on Sundays. I d- I'm not I'm not 100 on that. Oh my gosh, that's a uh, great that's a great I'm, grab though. We are the Bassmasters of Media Podcast. This is the Press Box, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. Bunch of great stuff to get to today. We're going to talk about the New Republic versus Mayor Pete. How in the 2020 election, the radio show The Breakfast Club has become the new view. Farewell to Major League Baseball pitcher slash memoirist Jim Bouton. Farewell to Starbucks selling print newspapers plus the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But back to what Donald Trump tweeted on Sunday morning, David. And I quote, so interesting to see progressive Democratic Congresswomen who originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt and inept anywhere in the world, if they even have a functioning government at all, now loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, how our government is to be run. And here's the important part. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime infested places from which they came, then come back and show us how it's done. Trump there is referring apparently to the quartet of Congress members known as the squad of those Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib were all born in the U.S. Ilan Omar from Minnesota immigrated from Somalia when she was 10, but even then, who cares? Uh, I think, David, the way to go here is to talk about how this played in the press relying heavily on Brian Stelter, who collected the responses. Let's first start by listening to Sunday night's NBC Nightly News, which was hosted by Kate Snow. To Washington now, and what's become a familiar pattern, the president puts out an inflammatory tweet that offends Democrats. But this one is striking a deeper chord, with many decrying it as racist. Hans Nichols has more from the White House. President Trump today trying to stoke conflict between House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and four minority liberal congresswomen, tweeting, go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came. 
Mr. Trump added, so interesting to see progressive Democrat congresswomen who originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe. The president has singled out one of the women, Miss Omar, before. She's from Somalia, the only one of the four congresswomen born outside the United States. I'm looking at this Omar from Minnesota. She shouldn't even be in office. Speaker Pelosi today denounced Mr. Trump's tweets as xenophobic comments meant to divide our nation. While Omar accused the president of stoking white nationalism because you are angry that people like us are serving in Congress. Other House Democrats, including the assistant House Speaker, rallying to their colleagues' defense. That's a racist tweet. And the field of 2020 Democratic hopefuls piled on. What he's trying to do is make America hate again. He's really doing something that is so anti-American. This country is facing another bigot who is trying to divide us again. While Trump may have united Democrats today, clear divisions still exist between Pelosi and the progressives in her caucus. That's a pretty good example, uh, without picking on NBC too much, of how the mainstream media covered this story. Which is to have people saying that those tweets are racist, but not actually saying themselves the tweets are racist. And by doing that in run sort of making the whole thing seem like a political dispute rather than a crisis of the president of the United States tweeting racist things. Do you agree? I mean, I agree that that seems to be what happened. Um, I mean, I think anybody watching that segment who's not paying a ton of attention comes away with, first of all, that terrible bill de blasio tagline make america hate again and then (laughs) but beyond that the sort of this idea that trump and the democrats are somehow at loggerheads over something he tweeted rather than the fact that this is outrageous and this particular phrase go back to fill in the blank has this long crazy ugly resonance in american life yeah yeah, I mean, I, I actually this this was this resonates with me in a kind of unfortunately particular way because I uh, just this weekend was with a um, extended family member who made some unfortunate uh, racially charged comments that he thought was really funny, um, and it Uh-oh. occurred to me it occurred to me that we as a culture are <laughs> are sort of ill equipped to deal with the president. I mean, this has been said a million times in a million different ways, but we're ill equipped to deal with someone of the president's position and stature making these sort of comments because. It was it, be, it was really clear to me in the moment this weekend that the best possible reaction to such things was to say fuck off, right? But it's not the you know the the that that be even if that's the most appropriate thing to say, it's not that's, that's an impossible thing for the New York Times to say. And even if they did, would President Trump be listening? And then even and then or or to just leave the room. I mean, make your but that's obviously not an option either, right? I mean, there's nothing you can really do. All of that is to say, yes, we are ill-equipped to deal with this and. And conveying it the way that 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 it's been conveyed, you're right. I mean, makes it look like there's some sort of element of disagreement. I mean, even the New York Times, which has covered this, I think, really effectively, their first piece, you know, said Trump tells Congresswoman Congresswoman to quote go back to the end quote to the countries they came from. The the, the quotation marks have to do a lot of heavy lifting there, but the but edit, it does editorialize at least a little bit, or at least you know make some sort of point, and then later. Uh, rejecting criticism, Trump accuses Pelosi of a very racist statement. That you know, and on and on and on. Again, that seems a little bit. Uh, that seems to issue the what's really you know at play. Now, I will say that they did. Uh, 
have a Charles Blow column uh, is that the first thing that comes up under top stories that says Trump's tweets mm-hmm. prove that he is a raging racist. Um, and that just is you know, the byline on Google or whatever is just the New York Times. So I guess that they, um, although that's an element of confusion thrown in, that does that does have some teeth, uh, but it's an op ed, you know. Um, and so, again, it's it's relying on other people to make that case. I mean, there's not a question here anymore. Right. As, as if there ever was. Um, and there's frankly, I and I frankly, I even think and, and listen, I don't think anything that that Ocasio-Cortez said was wrong in her tweet, but I think just trying to explain it is almost almost diminishes it, you know, to, to try to like say that he, he's doing this because he's worried about because he's scared of us or because he doesn't like us. No, the appropriate answer is fuck off. <laughs> yeah, I think I think explaining it or or saying what Trump fears or something like that to me does actually diminishes the the vileness of it. Yeah. A lot. Um, because I don't I don't really know that it even even merits an explanation in that kind of way. I think I had a couple of reactions when I saw this. I often find myself when we have these disputes, not usually about race, but about Trump is lying or something like that with the New York Times. I often side with the feckless journalists because oftentimes it's the Times uncovering something that Trump did. And, you know, then everybody on Twitter says, why can't you call it a lie? Why can't you say that Trump is lying? When, in fact, they, what they've done is just gone out of their way to demonstrate that by, by uncovering some kind of fact. But in this case, this was a public tweet. And really, your only job here is context. Mm-hmm. And to me, the context that I wanted right away or in the kind of news analysis piece is you know, there was a little bit, and uh, I think Peter Baker wrote the analysis piece on this in the in the Times that you're referring to, is, you know, hit Trump's history of racist comments. But I think the other thing is just that the history of that kind of comment itself and where that comes from and what are the, who are the kind of people that say those things and have said that particular thing throughout history. That That's kind of what I want because... Yeah. Otherwise, it just seems like you're tiptoeing around it. And, you know, in quoting, it's really weird to just, I think, I think what makes, what makes people freak out when this happens, and I think I'm probably one of them is when you have to go to a Democrat to say that he said something racist, because we're in this, we're in this moment where all, almost all the Democratic candidates are happy to say that, but nobody on the Republican side is, wants to say it. No. So when you say when you quote a Democrat saying that you're almost making it into a political dispute, which is exactly what Trump wants. Yeah, he wants this to be Republicans versus Democrats. Yep. I say stuff and they're against me. And you're almost playing his game when you do that. Yeah. I mean, the first reports that I read and forgive me, I don't know where it was, but but went back and, and traced some of the previous uh, offensive, you know, racist things that the president had said in, in uh, you know, in his birther days and the first campaign. And since then, and, and, and actually recorded some, I mean, instances along the way where Republicans objected to it and said that the, the comments were inappropriate and, the, you know, whatever. But I, in some way, I think that that I mean, not in some way. I think that very, very straightforwardly diminishes the reluctance that Republicans have had along the, the entire time with speaking out against this stuff. Yes, you're like two months from now, you'll be able to look back and find two quotes of Republicans who said that these were inappropriate comments. That doesn't mean that they rose in the, they rose up to riot against the, the the racism of it, you know, and and to and to you know take their president to task in an election cycle. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I think that it's, I mean, it's just, this is the easiest thing to come out against in the world. This would be like, this (laughs) would, I mean, like to say, go back to the countries you're from is, I am not overstating this. It is literally like wearing a white hood out onto the White House lawn and then, and then retroactively being like, making some excuse as to why like, oh, I just, it was a pillowcase. I thought it was a joke. You know, I mean, it's not, there is no question what was meant here. And if there, and listen, if you think there was a question, if you, if you want to make that case, then you are making the case that your president is disqualifyingly stupid. Like he should not be eligible for the presidency because he is dumber than a piece of carpet. (laughs) You know, I think kind of breaks reporters minds when they run into something like that is the fact that Trump made a factual mistake in this. So we said that at the top of the segment here, three out of the four Congress members he's talking about were actually born in the United States. Reporters have this very pedantic way, and this this is often what makes them good reporters, of trying to discern truth from lies. And so often when Trump throws out something incredibly incendiary like this, he has mistakes in it because he has mistakes in everything, including like the, the... invitation to the Red Sox to come visit the White House. But reporters, I think, fixate on the mistake as if it would be ever be appropriate to to tell anyone go back to where they came from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as if that would ever, 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 ever be appropriate. But it's like, well, you know, three out of four of these people, you know, actually are from the United States. So it's like Trump is somehow guilty. But I often find I think that actually when we're talking about diminishing the power of his comments, I think that sort of gets in the way for reporters sometimes. It's a um, it's a strange thing. Here are the nut graphs from the New York Times news story. Uh, wrapped inside that insult, which was widely established as a racist trope, widely established as a racist trope, was a factually inaccurate claim, dot, 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 which I just covered. Even though Mr. Trump has repeatedly refused to back down from stoking racial divisions, His willingness to deploy a lowest rung slur, one commonly and crudely used to single out the perceived foreignness of non-white, non-Christian people, was largely regarded as beyond the pale. That's not that bad, but still (laughs) widely established as a racist trope, Um, stoking racial Mm. divisions, largely regarded as beyond the pale, you know. You see the watering down that happens, even with something that, as you say, is just so starkly and inarguably horrible. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's interesting that the, the op-ed, I mean, obviously it's a different thing, but the, but the opinion pages were allowed to just openly call him a racist. I'm sort of interested. I mean, I know this risks going off on a tangent that will diminish this you know situation as anything else well but i'm sort of interested in like the copy desk and the you know the the institutional decision making about how there's the word is used i know it was i know we've been through this before especially you know in the previous election cycle but um this seems like if there were ever there were a time to use the word racist in a headline i feel like we're there it it would seem so and again i don't know that that's the I mean, to me, I think a lot lot of the times all the criticism winds up focusing on the New York Times because they're so good and they're sort of the, you know, paper of record. But this is something and and read Stelter's media newsletter for more. But this is something that is across all the 
all media oh, yeah. almost. Oh, and and if you and if you watch the evening news, it's much much as we just heard. It's much much more elliptical than that. Yeah, I will. I just I just tripped backwards over an AP story that is I'm reading on the on the New York Times website that's headline is Trump digs Trump Trump digs in amid censure of racist tweets about lawmakers. So credit to the AP. Yeah, there you go. The uh, speaking of feckless, here is the reaction over at the weekend edition of Fox and Friends to Oof. Mr. Trump's tweets. Show us how it is done. These places need your help badly. You can't leave fast <laughs> enough. I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi would be very happy to quickly work out free travel <laughs> arrangements. This tweet that you're just seeing now is clearly going to get, I think, a lot of discussion. Comedian in Someone's chief. feeling very comedic today. So big laugh. Someone's. I would just like to stipulate that although we do occasionally have. Uh, people who who work on this show laughing in the background none of those laughs were, were by the uh, employees of the ringer yeah that was by the way is there anything sadder than a weekend fox and friends i was gonna say i was gonna i wanted to make a comment about the dude on the left and the way that he started eyeing the camera really uncomfortably when the woman in the middle started trying to explain what was right about what trump tweeted uh, but I didn't want to learn either of their names because the weekend oh. Fox and Friends hosts are about as disposable as gum. Um, but yeah, it's a uh, do do if you do watch the the clip on Twitter or wherever else, just watch the faces there where she's like she makes the case that you know whatever border security is what has always made this country great. I don't even I, don't, I mean clearly not what Trump was talking about, but the guy next to her is just like oh crap, we're about to get in it right here. I'm so glad you said that because this morning when I was putting together that clip, I was like, should I learn these people's names? I was like, nah, I just don't care. No. <laughs> just don't care who these people are at all. All right, David, it's time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Please send your submissions to at the press box pod where they will be gratefully received. Before we get started, Ryan Hand sends this in. Uh, an overworked Twitter joke that I love. Sports writers announcing the birth of a child with, quote, breaking free agent insert name has just signed a lifetime contract, no trade clause. Uh, David, that is kind of the combination of <laughs> childbirth and uh, NBA insiderdom all coming into one. Um, and thank thank you for not doing that when uh, after the recent birth of your own child. A marathon Wimbledon final, David, on Sunday night, which our pal Chris Almeida knows all about. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write lunch and quite possibly dinner at Wimbledon and also the <laughs> Boston New York Yankee game they played the other week would be in the sixth inning right now. Thanks to Daryl Dawson for both of those. The The baseball game was also very long in case you did not see that. Um, some bad reviews have started to trickle in for the rebooted Lion King movie. Oh, yes. A.A. A. Dowd. Over at the AV Club writes that John Favreau's movie labors under the bizarre misconception that anyone needed a photorealistic take on the Shakespearean struggle between talking, <laughs> singing lions. Which I thought that was really nice. nice. Uh, referencing one of the beloved songs from the original movie, it was an overworked Twitter joke to write, be prepared for a crushing disappointment. Thanks to Sam Wilson, who warns us to be prepared for a bunch of be prepared puns. We'll be looking for those, uh, Sam. <laughs> and and finally, in other Disney blockbuster news, this tweet made the rounds last week. The fundamentalist group One Million Moms objects to Toy Story 4 for showing a child with two moms. Okay? So the, just, just so we're clear, One Million Moms yeah. is upset about a child in Toy Story with two moms. It was uh, some great stuff came out of that. 
quote, why this child is 999,998 moms short. Uh, can you name all the moms so I can add 1 million people to my in real life block list? <laughs> and finally, they only gave the kid two moms because it would have been too expensive to animate 1 million moms. Thanks to David Mulhern for that. If you clown 1 million moms for being mathematically challenged, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke <laughs> of the week. <laughs> all right, David, before we move on, let's take a quick break. Today's episode is brought to you by Luminary, a new podcast subscription service with some of the best content around. I'm excited about Luminary because it's the only place you can listen to the newest show on the Ringer Network, Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 1999. This is definitely a podcast you can't miss. Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 99 uh, involves a music festival that took place in upstate New York that became a social experiment. There were riots, looting, numerous assaults, and it was set to a soundtrack of some of the era's most aggressive rock bands. Incredibly... It was the third iteration of Woodstock, a festival known for peace, love, and hippie idealism. Woodstock 99 revealed some hard truths behind the myths of the 1960s and the dangers that nostalgia can engender. Check out Woodstock 99 and so much more only on Luminary. and Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash pressbox. After that, it's only $7.99 per month. That's luminary.link slash pressbox for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash press box cancel anytime terms apply all right david on to the notebook dump and it's time to set our days since the last new republic scandal calendar back to zero because on friday the venerable lefty magazine published an article by notorious hatchet man dale peck yeah. whose book was literally called hatchet jobs <laughs> titled my mayor pete problem and the Pete's, which uh, refers to Pete Buttigieg as Mary Pete throughout, oh. a term meant by Peck to be, quote, the gay equivalent of Uncle Tom, end quote, also questions the legitimacy of Buttigieg's marriage, his ability to govern, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we may get to a few clips of this if I am willing to read them out loud. But what did you make of the story in The New Republic? Wow. Tossing it right to me, huh? Um, yeah, the- <laughs> it's all you, buddy. <laughs> um. It was sort of uh, halting. Is that an appropriate word to use here? It's, it's, <laughs> sure. It's, it um, was not what I expected to see. I mean, I, I don't want to jump too far ahead in this story, uh, but Chris Lehman, who's the editor of The New Republic, who I vaguely knew many, many years ago, um, mm-hmm. had said that this this piece was meant largely as satire, and knowing the sort of Dale Peck backstory as, as I do and as you do, I, I know well, it was sort of hard to read it without some sort of ironic detachment, right? Or at least hope, hoping that that was the point. Right. Hoping it was written with ironic detachment rather than this was actually how somebody seriously felt about Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. But I think if you know, I think that even without the intention, there's the element of like understanding the the, the author to the, enough know, to know that like there is implicit irony in his style and in his existence you know i mean there you know whatever there's the the to publish dale peck in the new republic is a wink towards a, a, a bygone era of uh ostentatious um deliberately showy criticism right i mean deliberately deliberately reductive but you know and destructive criticism but the that said you know it's not it's got to, it has to be seen as an editorial failure to because to to not establish that more clearly up top up, up front because the vast majority of the readership that's going to come to this is not going to be one with the intimate knowledge of Dale Peck's literary history. 
Right. And I think you also would have to establish that it works as satire. And it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't to me. Um, as you point out, Lehman uh, said it was uh, called it satire when McCormick, who was the editor in chief of the New Republic, uh, was one of the ones who apologized for it, apologized to Buddha Judge, and uh, pulled the piece down, removed it from the site. Should we explain it for a little bit for those who are those youngs who were not around in the early aughts who Dale Peck is? He is a novelist and literary critic who gained fame in a very different uh, New Republic, the early aughts, Barty Parrott's Leon Weaseltier New Republic. For being America's most vicious book critic, he called Rick Moody the worst writer of his generation. <laughs> called Terry McMillan's How Stella Got Her Groove Back a panting, gasping, protracted death rattle. Two valid uh, Stan- points of view. Yeah. <laughs> Stanley Crouch, whose book he also panned once, hit Dale Peck in a Manhattan restaurant. Uh, you can go back and read a, an old profile in the New York Times Magazine by James Atlas for more. But uh, let me read you one sentence. This is a little bit long, but it's it, it, it goes to the Peck style. Peck is talking about... Uh, modernist literature the modernist tradition he writes began with the diarrheic flow of words that is ulysses continued on through the incomprehensible ramblings of late faulkner and the sterile inventions of nabokov nabokov and then burst into full foul life in the ridiculous dithering of barth and hawks and gaddis and the reductive cardboard constructions of bartholomew and the word-by-word wasting of a talent as formidable as Pinchon's, and finally broke apart like a cracked sidewalk beneath the weight of the stupid, just plain stupid, tomes of DeLillo. So count the great novelists um, that he uh, sprays with machine gun fire in that sentence, <laughs> starting with James Joyce and eventually working to uh, DeLillo. Yeah. He, um, he got and listen, famous. I, oh, go ahead. For go those. Ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I mean, he got, fa- he got famous for the hat, for the over-the-top hatchet job. It's funny because reading about, I mean, re- reading his takes on the sort of literary establishment or the canon, um, there are certainly elements or, or degrees to which I agree with a lot of what he says. And I think most of what he took, most of what he took fire for in his heyday, I mean, most of these came in the, most of these, uh, those quotes came within reviews of other books that were current releases, right? And a lot of yes. what he took fire for was the, kind of absent the utter absence of like the expected decency or the you know of cordiality that comes in like the book review com- community which is not mm-hmm. to to water down the the depths to which he was unnecessarily acerbic or just outright incorrect and cruel at times um but you know i think that there there were some smart ideas buried in there i just i think but i think the entire thing is just sort of like literary performance art uh, you know, it didn't have legs. And obviously that's sort of the, the, the way those things go. Yeah. It is interesting to go back and read some of those sentences in light of the Buddha judge thing. The, uh, pet got so big in this period that at the 2002 national book awards, Steve Martin, who was reading off the nominees said, if anyone applauds before everyone has been announced, they will be reviewed by Dale Peck. So Dale Peck was sort of like a one liner at that point in history, which is kind of amazing. Uh, and kind of amazing that he's back. Uh, one of the fallouts from this was the New Republic, the League of Conservation Voters and Gizmodo had all been uh, names on a September Democratic candidates forum about climate change. The League of Conservation Voters pulled out and then the New Republic pulled out. So I guess it's all up to Gizmodo now to to uh, save the climate. Anyway, what a weird episode. Also, just because we're, you know, in this media sphere, it bears mention this uh 
conversation that Connor Friedersdorf and Nate Silver had on Twitter where, where Friedersdorf said, so long as a person from a historically marginalized group adheres to progressive orthodoxy on every subject, most left-leaning institutions will treat them with respect. Should they stray from it, however, macroaggressions will ensue. The latest example, and then the link to this piece, Nate Silver's, uh, I think, correct response was, I don't know, I think that maybe the lesson is just that the New Republic has shitty editors. And they went back and forth for a bit. But that's that's the takeaway. There you go. Uh, in other election-ish news, David, the next voice you're about to hear is from the one of the leading power brokers in the Democratic primary. No, it's not Joy Behar. I refer, of course, to Charlemagne the God, one of the hosts of the radio show The Breakfast Club. Yes. Uh, here's Charlemagne on CNN last week explaining why The Breakfast Club has already hosted one third of the Democratic candidates running for president. What is the difference on your show when they than other interviews, you think? Um, I think that they know that they can come to us and be a little bit more loose. But I actually think that they were coming to our show because they thought that they could just get over on the black and brown audience. Like they didn't think that, you know, we, we were as prepared as, as, as we as we are when they come to the show. So I think <clears> that they thought they could just come in there and just, you know, do their usual political rhetoric spill, their scripted talking points and, you know, hey, on to the next thing. But I think that um, I think I think the jig is up on that. I think they know they got to come and be prepared. The Breakfast Club started on Power 105.1 in New York and now beams to 90 markets and has a giant YouTube platform. Kamala Harris went on for the second time last week and did 45 freewheeling minutes, the kind of interview that any journo on the campaign trail would kill for. Uh, so the Breakfast Club, David, don't you think has kind of re- displaced the view, at least temporarily? And and by the way, not a moment too soon. Thank God, because I yeah. was just rooting for anything to displace the view as the uh, and or Morning Joe is, is the place to go for politics in this country. What is uh, why do you think this has happened? I was kind of playing with this idea this morning as I was watching uh, Harris's latest interview. Um, well, I think the format is, I mean, even if it's maybe less, you know, politically in, or politically overt as some other platforms. Um, and I don't even know if that's a, a correct thing to say, but, you know, if one wants to just make assumptions about the, about the uh, content, um, it's a lot more of a human and also unforgiving context, right? I mean, you have, you have 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And like you said, in the case of Kamala, Kamala Harris's last appearance, um, and this is with people who have been honing this craft for a long time, you know? I mean, it's possible mm-hmm. to, it's possible as we saw, you know, as, as everyone took note uh, during Trump's candidacy, it's possible to sort of run out the clock on every single, in, you know, significant question that is thrown your way, right? All you have to do is filibuster, even in a debate, even in a sit-down interview, all you have to do is filibuster for long enough and the interviewer will move on. And it's a lot harder when you're trying to fill 30 minutes, you know, and when, uh, and when the people interviewing you can keep circling back around, um, you know, and, and, and also, like I said, there's a, I mean, there is a real form to it. I mean, I, it's, it sounds sort of silly, but you know, uh, people that, that have been doing radio at the highest level for a long time, um, I mean, there's a sort of throwback quality to it, even though the, even though, you know, it's, there's a sheen of freshness on it. Um, they're not, you know, they, they have a big YouTube following and everything else, but they're not, you know, in the, in the, in the mode of adapting for the modern world in the way that TV is, you know, they're not trying to shorten things necessarily. They're not trying to, to make everything into a meme. They, this is, this is like old school, long form audio, you know, this is what, this is what you and I do twice a week, except they're better at it. 
That's exactly right, especially that they're better at it than we are part. I think, though, to your point about it being old school, it is also has a lot more in common with lefty Twitter than political TV does. Yeah, that's true. Um, you, you know, if we look at people, there's a few kind of emissary figures on cable like Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow. But I think when lefty Twitter watches the election, they look at people like Chris Cuomo and Chris Matthews and be like, these people have nothing in common with me at all. Whereas the Breakfast Club kind of sounds like Twitter in a way. Yeah. Uh, and I mean that as a compliment. Uh, Charlemagne told uh, Harris in this latest interview that people should chant lock him up about Trump. <laughs> at her rallies she just sort of smiled he asked her how can you win how can you hope to win this election with um with russian interference the um was funny watching her too is this was almost like i thought watching it it was almost her best forum or her best medium because she's really good at as we saw in the last debate using emotion to make her points uh she was also really smart in this interview about tying the immigrant experience that we're talking about now with the border to the black experience in America through the theme of incarceration, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and she's much more just comfortable kind of talking about those kind of issues and ideas than she is at rolling out specific plans like Elizabeth Warren. And in fact, listen to Harris subtweet Warren in this response to a question from one of the Breakfast Club hosts, DJ Envy. You know, with, with everybody on stage, it's almost like, you know, free, min- you know, we're going to raise minimum wage, free health care, free student loans. Everybody Black saying what you want to hear. Yeah. You know, it's like you get a call, you get a call, you get a call. Yeah. It sounds good. But what's real and what's bullshit? Like, yeah. what as president can we really do? You That's know, right. right now it sounds good. You know, everybody That's wants right. to massage you. Right, but it's great. what can we really, really do? Lofty as right. ideals, but can these things happen? They, 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 they can't. When you they, become president, what can you really do? Well, I'm going to tell you, that's why I'm not churning out plans like a factory because it is really important to me that any plan that I'm prepared to to, to implement is actually doable. So you see the bullshit too? Bull crap. Well, I just think that... I'll, okay. <laughs> she, go, she goes on to then sort of Harris goes on to center it in ideology. Right? Oh, with these, the, you know, some of these people who are churning out plans like a factory are really just being ambitious. But, but, but my concern is how do we get there, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I thought that was a really funny moment. Also, the Breakfast Club is just a lot funnier. Yes. Uh, here's a small clip they played on CNN of a few highlights from this year. Have you ever smoked? I have. Okay. Like and I, and I inhale. I did inhale. I did inhale. It was a long time ago. <laughs> but yes. What about Chick-fil-A? You like Chick-fil-A? I do not approve of their politics, but I, I kind of approve of their chicken. <laughs> you, oh my my kind of, you my kind of guy, man. Before I declare president, I, I'm, I'm dating somebody that's really special. So. Oh, yeah. So Cory Booker got a boo. I, I got a boo. You must not read the blog, Charlamagne. <laughs> that was uh, Mayor Pete uh, trying to straddle the difference between liking Chick-fil-A's chicken and not approving of Chick-fil-A's politics. <laughs> Truly. Um, <laughs> but I think those... Truly a 2019 kind of straddle. Go ahead, David. No, I think it's an important straddle. And I think that that's, I mean, I guess it's, this is the point of the, this segment where I get to become overly reductive. So I'm not going to apologize, but it's, uh, you know, having that kind of time and space and that sort of just, and, and also to, to exist sort of, like I said before, outside of the normal news media space time continuum, um, you know, that with the expectation that you're not going to, to ask every question and solve every problem that you're going to be slightly extraneous to that. 
Um, it gives you a freedom to be, you know, just more human on both sides, the questioner and the answer, right? And and you, you know, if you mm-hmm. have if if you have one opportunity to ask one question in a press conference of a presidential candidate, you're going to end up with something really insipid, you know, just really just maybe overly complicated, maybe too many. <laughs> Maybe too many qualifiers or second and third iteration, you know, uh, iterations like we like we've talked about before. But you're going to end up with a lame question if you have one opportunity. If you have a lot of time to sit down and talk, you're going to end. up... I mean, listen, if you if you went and fr- if you were at a press conference and you made the lock him up joke, you'd get booed out of the room and rightly so. But as like a throw as like a ta- throwaway line halfway through a 45 minute interview, it has a certain amount of power, you know, and and the and the reaction or lack thereof uh, carries a lot of weight too. That's totally right. And there is that element of danger because you don't, you, you don't know what you're going to be asked all the time. Mm-hmm. And you can't anticipate when, when Charlemagne turned to Elizabeth Warren, who was in the midst of her rally back to the top of the polls and said, you're like the white Rachel Dolezal. <laughs> that was, that was one of those, you know, da-da moments of the campaign. We're like, Oh, right. That stuff. Uh Oh, yeah. and, well, and it- um, and you know, she had this, you know, kind of like look on her face, like, Oh my God. But, uh, it was amazing. Yeah. I mean, Charlemagne, who I don't know if it needs, if it needs saying, but has been on Bill's, the Bill Simmons podcast a couple of times. Um, he has, is a, uh, is a talented dude. Um, I personally listen a lot more to, uh, to Ebro in the morning because my dear friend, Peter Rosenberg is the, is one of the hosts there and, uh, their, their competition, so I won't go over too too over the top about either one. But one thing that you know when you you realize when you listen to these, and I guess that that's the point is candidates may not be listening to these shows every day, but um, it does take a lot of confidence to go in because you have to know the terrain a little bit. And if you but if you know the terrain at all, you know that it's not overly adversarial, right? That if you that if you go in with a certain, it's sort of like the 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 old canard about going to France. All you have to do is like try to speak French, and then people will be nice to you. <laughs> If you go in with like, you know, an open mind and uh, and and a willingness to to have a good time, then it's never going to get too awkward unless you say something deeply, you know, really offensive. Uh, yeah. There, you know, Hillary, the, the, Hillary was the ultimate test case for this. Yeah, the ago. the host the host will 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 play will you know will play ball with you and 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 will bail you out kind of kind of furtively if you get into a sticky situation. Um, but it's but it but what it shows is a sort of willingness to be human uh and that that a lot of candidates like literally don't have and uh and and i think that it's a it's a that the willingness to go on and 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 the ability to to you know be charismatic on that stage is a very important thing uh in the obits column david jim bouton died over the weekend he was the former yankee pitcher who was if anything probably more famous for writing the memoir Ball Four, mm-hmm. one of the best baseball books of all time, it's funny with reading through the obits and thinking about him a little bit. I I couldn't help but think that Lenny Schechter, who was the New York Post columnist, who was the ghostwriter, if that's the right word for it, for the book, essentially helped him organize all his thoughts yep. and put it into a big, wonderful, amazing book. That's got to be one of the only times, or one of the few times in the history of sports writing where going into business with an athlete was worth it ever mm-hmm. because we've seen so many sports writers write memoirs. They are almost 90 plus percent of them are unmemorable. 95 plus percent of them could have been written by any random ghostwriter. 
And then they plunge, you know, they, they plunge into business with these guys. It's not a good idea. It's often stupid. Sometimes the, the athlete turns out to be Lance Armstrong. <laughs> you wind up having to answer for lots of stuff that Lance does later, et cetera, et cetera. It's almost always a bad idea. It's only to me a good idea if it's something like ball four, where one, you're actually going to say something and put a bunch of stuff out there that's not in the public sphere, but two, that the athlete memoir sort of can do the work that sports journalism isn't doing. So there's all this stuff about the Yankees and Mickey Mantle that sports writers either hadn't gotten into print or were unwilling to get into print. And Schechter realizes, wait a second, we can get all this stuff into the universe through an athlete memoir that we can't get in the sports pages or haven't gotten in the sports pages. And that to me is the moment you want to go into business with an athlete, but it has to be that. And, and looking back, right, look, look at the number of memoirs that have been written since ball four, many with the cooperation of sports writers. How many have hit that Nirvana, you know, 10, yeah, 20, 20 generously. Mm-hmm. That's anyway, they, I know that sounds like the boringly journalistic point about this whole, this whole great book, which you should absolutely read. But uh, I couldn't help thinking of that over the weekend. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the great books of, you know, the sports writing canon um, break break rules, right? I mean, they, they, and they sometimes lay waste to them. Um, the fact that you kind of come away with it still with the, uh, still willing to acknowledge that this is a, one of the all-time, can I say seminal works of, uh, works of oh, sports so, writing. Great work. Uh, Good choice. <laughs> Uh, just, I think is, I think is a testament to the, to the, to the talent of the writer and the, and the subject or, you know, the co-writers as much as anything else. Got a debate update for you, David. The second round of democratic debates are just over two weeks away. Whoa, man. I know. More work for us. Uh, immediate reaction to those debates here at the press box. That is your eternal reminder. But this Thursday, David, something amazing is going to happen. CNN is going to have its own debate lottery drawing. Uh, for who gets to participate in which debate. And all of us have been writing the think piece out loud for a few years now about how political TV has become exactly like sports TV. Mm-hmm. I think we've reached the point. We've done it. CNN now seems like not not even something you would see on on ESPN or TNT. It seems like a like a live ringer video that we shoot over in the chapel. I mean that that I think that I think we've reached that point now. People yeah. we're gonna draw the names and the candidates will appear in the will, to, to determine which candidates will appear in which debate. What a moment! What a moment for politics, and what a moment for sports television. Yeah, I mean, what am I supposed to add to that? This this is so silly. <laughs> this is the whole. This I'm already so yeah. I mean, I'm like it's just it, it's just it's it's just corny. I mean, they should make it into more of a game show. Make it into like Wipeout. Put them on top of red bouncy balls and watch them fall in some water. I mean, that's at least people yeah, would be interested I, I'm in I'm not even I'm not even in, offended on behalf of politics because I'm not sure <laughs> politics has some in, inherent dignity that we need to be protecting. Yes. I just think like this is if if we've all been if we've all been hinting that these two forums are coming together, they are now one thing. It yeah. is now over. It's it's over. So anyway, that think piece is now officially retired. Uh, anonymous source of the week, David. Uh, you remember, I think last time we gave it to a source who said the pages of Vanity Fair that Ray would complete her Jedi training in the new Star Wars movie. <laughs> yes, yeah. In a similarly related story, we're going to give it this week to a movie insider who talked to the Mail on Sunday, the British paper, about the upcoming James Bond movie, which I believe will be Daniel Craig's last. Uh, this had some spoilers in it, which I'm going to skip. 
but suffice it to say it was about a new female character in the James Bond franchise. Now, I want you to listen to these quotes and tell me if this sounds like a mole on the set of the movie or someone who has a vested interest in promoting the James Bond movie. Okay, here we go. These are anonymous quotes. Bond, of course, is sexually attracted to the new character and tries his usual seduction tricks, but is baffled when they don't work on a brilliant young black woman who basically rolls her eyes at him and has no interest in jumping into his bed. Well, certainly not at the beginning. Okay. <laughs> Quote number one. This, where do we get these inside sources? Here's number two. Uh, this is also There's an anonymous more? quote. I'm not. I am not making this up, by the way. This is a bond for the modern era who will appeal to a younger generation while sticking true to what we all expect in a bond film. The source added, there are spectacular chase sequences and fights and bond is still bond, but he's having to learn to deal with the world of hashtag me too. (laughs) Who talks like that? Oh, I mean, only, only people in like James Brady's parade magazine column, as far as I know. (laughs) So publicists and others. Exactly. What in the I mean, world is that, is that? That's hilarious. Is that not a that was not a press release. That was that was a that was a movie insider. Oh my gosh. So the 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 secrets of all leak now. This I'm sure that was an unauthorized leak. Congrats <laughs> to the uh, mail on Sunday. Bad newspaper <laughs> yeah, news of the great. day, David. Starbucks has announced that it will no longer sell newspapers. Print newspapers at least. Oh According God. to CNN, it's part of an effort to declutter stores and here's the part that hurts. Remove products customers aren't buying. I got to say, I have, I have used the Starbucks, uh, buy a real life newspaper gig more than once. In fact, I think it was a couple of weeks ago in Albuquerque. That's what I was going to say. Every time, I mean, I know this is a very sort of blinded thing to say, but, but as a New Yorker, when traveling in, literally anywhere else in the country, Starbucks is the place you go to get the New York times. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, maybe you can go a couple of days, but if you're, I mean, once you get, you know, if you're, if you're a, uh, subway, I mean a subway, a Sunday Times addict, uh, like so many of us are. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, it's it's. I can't believe that that's not that that's not more of a, a universal institution. I guess people are just off the newspapers. Yeah, uh, Starbucks stopped selling CDs in 2015. That was the one of the data points in all these pieces. <laughs> so <laughs> we we have a new CD and it's a print newspaper. And yeah, no wonder my mom's music rotation hasn't changed in the past couple of years. <laughs> this from the uh, player empowerment era of the NBA, David, which we hear so much about. We now talk about the NBA. We talk about how players get to build teams. They get to escape contracts. They engineer their own trades. Well, Anthony Davis was just introduced as the newest member of the Los Angeles Lakers. After getting himself traded from LA uh, to LA from the New Orleans Pelicans, uh, he was at a press conference. Listen to how he described those events. I think the most difficult part for me was just not knowing, you know, um, the unknown. You know, it was whether you know I get traded or whether you know, I go back to New Orleans. Um, so I think the unknown was just the most difficult for me. And then when. Uh, you know, it, it was announced that I was being traded. Um, I want to say it was a sign of relief. It was just, you know, you know, something that, you know, that I, I've thought about for a long time. Um, obviously, it was tough for me to, you know, leave a city that I've been playing for for seven years. But um, I think it was, you know, best for me, and it was my time. But when, you know, when I found out I was getting traded to the Lakers, um, you know, it was, I, I realized it was an unbelievable opportunity for me. 
um, to be here. Uh, a wonderful organization. Um, and then get to play alongside, um, you know, LeBron and obviously now the players that we have now. Um, but back then, before, it was really just <laughs> LeBron here. You see where we are in the player empowerment era? The players can make the trades, can can fulfill the fill the rosters, but you can't really come out and say that yet. It's it's not it's not cool to say I made the New Orleans Pelicans trade me because I didn't want to play there anymore. Yeah. And I wanted to play with LeBron James instead. Which I think has got to be the next step, right? Because if we all know the players could do these things, and a lot of us, including both people on this podcast, are okay with the players doing these things. We've got to get to the point at some point where the players can actually admit to doing these things. Yeah. <laughs> right? And again, I'm not trying to cast blame here. It's just funny that all the conversation is about Kawhi and AD and LeBron and Kevin Durant and Kyrie and everybody else making these moves. And then we get to the press conference. Oh, I just, you know, I found out I was traded to the Lakers and I thought, wow, this is a great opportunity for me. <laughs> He's been pushing mm-hmm. to be traded to the Lakers for like six months. Yeah. He and his agent. Anyway, I look forward to that day because I think we, I think that the real test will be when we can actually talk about this stuff. Yeah. And maybe you can have more of an argument about, uh, about which, which, how the NBA should be run. All right. It's time for David Shoemaker guesses the strain pun headline. David's favorite part of the podcast, TM. <laughs> uh, this week's headline, David, came to us from ooh, a whole bunch of people. Oh. Yifan Wu, Ben Keelholtz, Derek Ashworth, Andrew Johnson, Matthew Haber, Paul Berenger, and Rob the Sports Grouch. And at that point, I had to cut it off. There was a something like unanimity in Press Box World like, that David should guess a headline about chess. Well, that is the, 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 yes, the game chess on ESPN.com. Uh, maybe not what you thought was Esquire in the 60s, but David, <laughs> listen to this. Grandmaster Igor's Rousas has admitted to cheating at a tournament in France after he was caught using his phone in the bathroom. Okay. This is like, I think this is like how you cheat on an AP test in high school. Yeah. Like, I, I got to go to the bathroom and then you go in and uh, get some answers. I think Igor, Grandmaster Igor's Rousas went into the bathroom and uh, opened up his chess app and said, what move do I make now? Uh, that's that's kind of the thumbnail. The part you need to focus on, David, is a chess grandmaster getting caught cheating in the bathroom. What is the ESPN.com strained pun headline? Um, well, I felt confident about this. I'm talking about, I'm filibustering at the moment. I, t- I felt a little bit of confidence in the fact that it was recommended by so many people that I thought it might, there must be like a, notable a, a pun that would that would spring to mind uh and then chess brings me back down to uh square one which i know is not a chess metaphor this is a good one this is even better than i was expecting okay so um <laughs> it's uh do i need to know any chess terms that have not that weren't in no. your 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 okay um mm-hmm. That's I chess think that grand chess grandmaster getting caught grandmaster. cheating in the bathroom. Uh, Gets caught cheating in the bathroom. I'm I'm really hung up on the fact that there is an old, uh, sadly passed away wrestler who went by Grandmaster Sex A. Um, mm, you were uh, you were on the right track, if not in wrestling. Uh, think of another another words. wing of the arts. Oh oh, uh, Grandmaster Flash. Grandmaster oh. Grand- 
I'm looking. Oh, I'm just looking at Almeida right now. I'm just staring little, this down. A little, a little, a Grandmaster little pun fl- action. Oh, a Grandmaster pun Flush. Action? Is that that's Grandmaster the whole headline? Flush. <laughs> Grandmaster Flush. Oh my god, flush. I'm, I'm on a I am on a half a half ass roll right now with these things. I feel great. <laughs> you you are. You got like three or four in a row. Grandmaster Flush. Oh my gosh, ESPN that's really good. It's bid for headline immortality. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Chris Almeida, whose voice you just heard, helps with research. Jim Cunningham is our producer. More lukewarm takes on the media later this week. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. David. Wow, tossing it right to me, huh? Yeah, it's all you, buddy. <laughs> the worst writer of his generation. Fuck off. Oh, 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 oh. Just leave the room. If you clown one million moms for being mathematically challenged, congrats. You're about as disposable as gum. Who talks like that? Oh, I mean, only only people in like James Brady's Parade Magazine column, as far as I know. That's... <laughs> <laughs> so publicists and others. Yeah, exactly. I am not making this up, by the way. Oh, crap. We're about to get in it right here. Why do you think this has happened? Because he doesn't like us. No, the appropriate answer is fuck off. Oh, oh. Yeah, I think I think explaining it. Jesus Christ. Stupid. Just plain stupid. Dumber than a piece of carpet. Yeah. What a moment. What a moment for politics and what a moment for sports television. <laughs> um... Anyway, what a weird episode. Wow.